My name's Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm being joined today on Bridges to the Future by Peter Biro. Peter, you're speaking from Canada, aren't you? Indeed, from Toronto. Great. Well, Peter, I've read your CV and you wear a lot of hats. So choose which hats you want to be wearing today for the podcast. Describe yourself to our listeners. That's an impossible task, to be fair, because I think all human beings are multidimensional. <laughs> what I'll say about myself is that I am a part public interest advocate and lawyer, part NGO chair, part public intellectual. I'm a person who's engaged in the world. Certainly, there's a scholarly side to my life and, a, and an intellectual side that's obviously very important and fulfilling. But my personal experience and sort of the trajectory of my life is such that I've always found that direct engagement as, you know, as a person of action in the world, whether it is in trade and commerce, I'm the CEO of a, an electro-optics manufacturer that exports high-tech electro-optical equipment around the world. But I'm also, you know, the past chair of the Jane Goodall Institute Global. And of course, throughout you know, the last 30 years, I've been a lawyer and a commercial litigator. They're all really interrelated. They're complementary in my view. I think certainly in terms of how I've come to understand the world, I don't think I would sort of be where I am and have the understanding that I do have for what little that may be worth without having been engaged in these different sort of spheres of human activity in the world. Wow. So kind of a modern Renaissance man. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, Peter, what your big idea is. But I know that when people have listened to you, they'll want to look you up. And when they do, Peter's surname is B-I-R-O. And you must get pretty irritated, particularly, I guess, is it with from British people being referred to as Peter Byro? Is that one of the big irritations of your life, Pete? Yeah, not an irritation at all, but it always involves a little backstory and, of course, a correction on the pronunciation. Byro, as in the Byro pen, actually was invented by a Hungarian emigre to Buenos Aires named Laszlo Biro. And I happened through family relations, actually, to know of his family, although there's no blood relation between me and him. <laughs> so the reason I wanted to raise this with you is that my father has a little sideline in absurd political chants or slogans or whatever. And one of the ones he's particularly fond of that he claims he heard chanted in the 1960s was London, Moscow, on to Cairo, the sword is mightier than the biro. <laughs> that is fabulous. <laughs> I love it. And any excuse, the idea of a bunch of hippies marching down Whitehall, shouting that is delicious. Delicious and how true it is as well. <laughs> so Peter, enough of that. Let's ask you the question we ask everyone on this podcast. So Peter Biro, what is your big idea for the post-COVID world? Well, with your indulgence, I'll try to encapsulate it. It's more of an argument in progress than a, a big idea. And I certainly don't pretend to any great original insights. 
I think, you know, faced with COVID, faced with other great challenges, I think it's become increasingly apparent to me, and I, I've spent a lot of time sort of studying the what Nancy Bermio has famously called democratic backsliding throughout the West. It's become very apparent to me that liberal democracies are actually not adequate to the challenge of facing some of these grand, grand predicaments. The pandemic, of course, the biggest one of our lifetime. I think you would probably agree global warming and climate change and the, the threat to the sustainability and, and viability of a healthy planet. The obvious problem that is uh, you know, sort of front and center in the newspapers today, which is historic institutionalized racial injustice. And of course, really one of the biggest ones, which is rampant, exponentially increasing economic inequality. So there's four that I've mentioned. Liberal democracy, in my submission, has not proven to be up to the task of addressing those and overcoming those challenges. And I think, first of all, that's an important observation. But more importantly, we have to ask, well, why? What's going on? And I think ultimately, it has to do with the failure of liberal theory in general, liberal democratic societies, to achieve a kind of authentic consensus or to engender a kind of authentic consensus in mass populations that is absolutely required to be able to address effectively and systematically these kinds of challenges. Now, why is that? You know, ultimately, politics and governments can do a lot of things. They can coerce kind of conformity and behavior. They can do it through fraud and disinformation. We learned that from Goebbels and propaganda. They can do it through the deployment of, you know, fear tactics. I and mean, we learned that way back in The Prince with Machiavelli, who explained the connection between certain types of coercion and compliance. But consensus generation is what is required to be able to overcome the types of challenges we're talking about now. And we see living examples of that every day. And you can't achieve that kind of consensus of generation just through compelling conformity or compliant behavior. It's got to go deeper. What you need is social cohesion. And, you know, as Roberto Ungar, and I know he's one of your favorites, you know, has taught us and explained to us, social cohesion really depends on something more than, first of all, certain background conditions, such as material comforts and stability. Uh, it actually requires a kind of engagement, deep engagement communally. Uh, liberal theory doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that, you know, going all the way back to Hobbes and Locke and all the way right up to Rawls. You know, the communitarians such as, you know, Charles Taylor, Michael Sandel, and their precursors, you know, the H's, I call them, Hegel, Herder, Humboldt, and sometimes even Heidegger, they were critiquing liberal theory in very deep ways, calling it out, if you will, on failure to describe the actual person who is the subject, the subject citizen of liberal society. Liberalism is very focused on a set of rules and a set of principles, which I subscribe to very passionately. But that is not sufficient to be able to overcome the problems that the world is facing now. And so what we need is to go back to the question of social cohesion, how we can actually cultivate that. And my sort of short cut answer to that is twofold. On the one hand, it's to say that the main ingredient, and there are many, so I don't want to reduce it to one thing, in social cohesion is a kind of societal deference to the authority of truth, 
of facts, of knowledge, and to the importance of truth-seeking on the one hand, what has been called a shared epistemic foundation. And that has really been shattered of late. And we can talk about that if you like. But there's a way to respond to that and to address it. All right, to rehabilitate society and society's confidence, shared confidence in the common language of shared ideas and knowledge and the authority of truth seeking. The other thing on the other end of the coin is leadership. There is a major leadership vacuum throughout the world, and I think it's because, generally speaking, the leaders that we have, with very few exceptions, don't know what leadership really constitutes and what it calls for. And again, we can talk about what some of the elements of leadership might be that would contribute to the kind of rehabilitation of a society capable of addressing these major, major, major predicaments that we're facing now. Well, Peter, there's so much in that and so much to unpack. Let me start with one particular thing that you said that I found fascinating, which is this notion that a weakness of liberalism has been its inadequate kind of account of persons themselves, of the democratic subject in favour of a focus on rules and procedures. And I'm very taken by that idea because I think you can make an argument which says that to understand society, you should start with our own core human motivations and that there is a fruitful parallel to be drawn between the battle we have within ourselves to balance our different needs and wants and the battle that societies have to balance those different needs and wants. And that, in a sense, you know, one of the things that's problematic about the way the academy works, the ever greater kind of atomism of the academy, people more and more specialised and more and more inward looking, is that it's become very difficult to get you know, the insights of psychologists, sociologists, economists, political scientists together to try to produce an account which, as you say, might link theories of human psychology to theories of social process, to theories of economic cycles and to political science. So it's part of the problem, the way in which we, and particularly the academy, looks at these issues in very narrow ways. Oh, I agree. What you've just said, I wholeheartedly endorse, just in terms of the set of concerns that you raise and the observations that you make. There's no question, for example, when you look at liberal theory, just to take an example, and you go all the way back to Hobbes, that it's founded originally on a conception not of justice, not of what we might want the world to look like, but apparently on a particular theory of human nature itself. And of course, we don't need to repeat the, you know, life in the state of nature, solitary, nasty, brutish, and short, etc. That we understand. But you know, and Freud sort of picks up on it in a different way, and he brings in a conception of kind of collective neurosis that is, in his view, inescapable, literally inescapable. In other words, that from which we cannot escape if we live together in civil society. And then you build a theory of government and of societal arrangements around that conception of human nature. That's one way to do it. And then you can have, you know, the battle between, you know, the liberals and the Darwinists on the one hand, and, you know, then you could take Peter Kropotkin on the other and his view of, you know, human progress and evolution as a function of cooperation and mutual assistance, right? I mean, but these are founded on different conceptions, you know, and throw Rousseau in there for good measure as well, all kind of different conceptions of human nature. You know, Roberto Unger, who I mentioned briefly at the outset, it has a different view, which is that we actually 
in a way, not just as a species, but even in communities and even at a more atomistic level than that as humans, as individuals, actually play a role in defining our own nature which is a very, very interesting idea. It's almost reducible to the idea that you can shape your universe and you can shape really who you are fundamentally. But anyway, we don't have time to sort of delve into that. Well, I think what's significant about it, though, is that if you look over the last 80 years and the different prevailing systems of those years. So I'm talking to you now, Peter, on a show which is interested in the possibility that crisis leads to a new era. And it seems to me that what is interesting is if you look at the kind of periods that we've had, we had that post-war era, which seems to me to have been based on a kind of vivid understanding of human frailty, on a recognition of human and societal and economic frailty, a recognition by intellectual civic leaders, politicians, that you had to very carefully hold society in balance if you didn't want to return to the horrors of the 30s, which gave rise to the horrors of the 40s. There was a deep kind of humility in the face of what can go wrong if you don't hold things in balance. And then, of course, that system starts to decay, and you have the oil shock, and America pulling out of Bretton Woods, and you move to a period of financial globalization and the rise of neoliberalism, itself based upon a theory of human nature, but this time a theory of human nature which throws out that humility in favor of the idea that human beings are homo economicus, that we are perfectly inclined utility maximizers, and that by some magical process, simply pursuing our own desires and wants will create you know, a better world. And then eventually that system starts to decay of the global financial crisis. We move into an era of populism, you know, which fundamentally has a view of the world that says we can only understand the world through the notion of belonging and group. And that the way to see the world is, is to divide it into groups, the virtuous and the corrupt. And all that matters is that your group is the group that's in charge and that you should then proceed to blame everything that is wrong in your life on those that you other. Any new era, it seems to me, Peter, has to be premised on some account of this relationship between human nature and social structure. And in all the conversations we have about the world we're moving into, what I find is, on the one hand, we either have accounts which are kind of largely, which are narrow and reactive. They are, well, the future should be different from the past because this one big thing should change. We should no longer have this thing and instead we should have that thing. And that's okay, but it's slightly narrow. On the other hand, we have a kind of ephemeral, well, we want to build a better world where everybody's equal and everybody's happy, which seems to me to fundamentally disregard the inherent tensions and challenges of social progress. What is missing from all of this is any kind of account, any kind of account of what it is that makes societies persist, what makes societies resilient. We're not really having that conversation, I don't think. I agree. Well, you've just covered an enormous amount of territory, and I appreciate your insights. Here's what I'll say. First of all, any effort to undertake a program that is predicated on, by program, of course, I mean a political program, broadly speaking, that's predicated on a specific notion of, you know, what constitutes a human being? What is human nature about? Ultimately, it's going to fail. It's hubris. It's a terrible conceit. By the way, that conceit goes all the way back to Francis Bacon, you know, the idea that we can master nature, that we can have control over the universe in some sense is a terrible conceit, and you can see where it's gotten us. I share your view that crisis is an opportunity for 
change. And in fact, indeed it is, and it will inevitably lead to change. But as Cass Sunstein has explained and taught us, we can't predict what that change is going to look like. We can think we can. And what does that really lead to? It means that any effort at social engineering is itself a bit of a, an arrogant undertaking. Now, that doesn't mean that one doesn't make an effort to produce a society that is genuinely better than the previous version. It doesn't mean that we don't try to borrow from Martin Luther King, you know, to follow the trajectory of the arc of justice, right? But the idea that you can socially engineer it because you have an unassailable understanding of all of the sort of constituent moving parts, it's just never proven to be valid. What I will say is that we can learn a great deal from history, it seems we never do. So the one thing that we, I think, can safely predict is that the calamities of the past will be visited upon us again in the future. And that is a very, very unfortunate. That may itself be only, <laughs> you know, that may be the most sort of valid and insightful observation about the nature of human nature, that we do repeat, you know, our most terrible and tragic failures. But the idea that we can produce a better world if we follow you know, a particular prescription is problematic. I think progress comes out of a kind of organic, and again, I refer to social cohesion, a kind of organic consensus generation, an authentic consensus generation, one that is not coerced or compelled. Crisis has a very, very important role to play in that because, you know, crisis shows us in very stark and sometimes very bleak terms, you know, what is at stake. It's important to take stock of what is at stake in the moment, whether it is the viability of an ecosystem, the future of the planet itself. But when you see the stakes clearly in front of you, that offers an opportunity for some elucidation and clarity. But that is not enough by itself. That's why protest movements are very, very important, but they don't within them contain the recipe or the prescription for progress itself. Enlightenment needs more than that. So, Peter, I agree. I guess my question is whether this consensus, which you argue is necessary for liberal democracy to get back on track to reverse the process of democratic backsliding, I guess my view is that that consensus can only come about if we have another revolution of the mind, that the Enlightenment was a revolution of the mind, and we now, of course, and still, I think possibly not completely, we have to recognise the terrible wrongs, evils that were committed in the name of those Enlightenment principles, and also the way in which those Enlightenment principles have become hollowed out, empty, misused. Nevertheless, you know, the Enlightenment was a revolution of the mind, and it did lead to enormous leaps forward in human progress alongside cruelty and exploitation. But it seems to me that we need another evolution of the mind. And the way that I would, I guess, describe that is we need deeper reflexivity. We need a deeper understanding of our nature and the way in which our nature is imprinted on social processes and structures. And so I'm with you. I think that the way you achieve progress is less about trying to kind of plan the future and more about the insights and behaviors and cultures that we have today, which provide the space through which the future organically grows. But I think we need this kind of reflexivity. And I see signs of it. I see 
you know, we have pulled apart the idea of Homo economicus in favour of a more subtle, a more nuanced understanding of human nature and our human frailties. I see in the domain of leadership, although absent, I'm afraid, too often amongst our political leaders, a much more reflexive form of leadership, leaders who understand that you need to think deeply about leadership, the perils of leadership. You understand leadership is the function of a system, not merely the attributes of an individual. But there are other aspects of our society where I think we lack that reflexivity. And in particular, I would point to kind of belonging and identity, where it feels to me as though we, we've we lost sight of the perils that come with group belonging, as well as you know, the comforts, the inspiration of group belonging is powerful, but there are perils that come with it too, and we seem to have forgotten those, and and that drives a lot of our polarization. Yeah, I, I agree with absolutely everything you just said, and indeed, we do need an enlightenment of the mind or several versions of it simultaneously, and that's why, for example, my project, Section 1, which is a kind of civics education, civil society undertaking, the tagline for which, by the way, I call education for heroic citizenship, is all about actually trying to contribute, obviously in quite modest ways, to what you're calling an enlightenment of the mind, and it goes to the whole question of what is required to make an effective, fully actualized democratic citizen. But let me go back to another point that you made. And by the way, while we need an enlightenment or a revolution of the mind, we have to be cognizant of the fact that other types of revolutions sometimes work in counterproductive ways. I mean, we just marked La Prise de la Bastille, July 14th, and the uh, 1789 French Revolution, which ultimately, while it gave us some wonderful mottos uh, like liberté, égalité, fraternité, it also gave us, you know, a new king or a new emperor, and it gave us a new form of authoritarian government and many incarnations of it before there was finally a kind of republican government that we would today recognize as being democratic. But what I will say, I agree very much with what you say about belonging, but that's a double-edged sword, this concept of belonging, because, you know, in this polarized, deeply polarized world that we live in, if the belonging, regardless of the group, the community, the club, all right, that we are talking about, you know, as being the sort of the repository of membership, if that is founded on, you know, pure myth or fraud or coercion of some kind, it becomes very, very problematic. We're living in a world where, for example, social media plays this incredible role. It both contributes to democratization, but I think more problematically creates a universe of disinformation and echo chambers that actually operates as a structural barrier to consensus generation across partisan and ideological lines. And I think that creates a major problem because there are certain things, regardless of the group that you belong to, the community that you belong to, all right, the club you belong to, the religion, etc., the society, there are certain things that we as human beings need to agree on. And if we can't, that is, you know, certainly a major contributor to irreconcilable polarization. Yeah. And Peter, look, I completely agree with that. And I guess my suggestion is, could the thing that we could agree on, would the most fruitful area for us to establish what we agree about be our own nature? In a sense, partly because it is so personal to us. The problem with a lot of political discourse and, you know, theory is that it's just so far removed from people's lives. It feels so abstract. They don't feel they have the efficacy to engage with it. But if we could start this conversation about consensus with a recognition of our own characters, 
The fact that we ourselves are continuously trying to balance the things that we desire with our craving for authority, with our need to belong, with our recognition of our own mortality, that possibly it is reaching agreement about who we are as subjects that is more realistic and more fruitful than imagining we can agree about more abstract principles. That's a very interesting thought, and I'm not at all sure I understand what you mean, Matthew. Um, when you say, can we you know, agree on our own nature or our own characters, do you mean as a species? Do you mean collectively? Can we reach agreement on sort of common traits or common elements of our nature and character? Or are you speaking in a more Hungarian way, if you will, about individual nature? I'm speaking more about individual nature, but the way that it is then imprinted on society. So I would say that if you think about the fundamental drives that human beings have, so if you think of the drive of individual aspiration and freedom, we need to understand that that is amazing. It's our lifeblood. It's our uniqueness. It drives creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship, but also it has its downsides in egoism and selfishness and a kind of mythical account of what actually drives human beings. It ends up with the arid notion of homo economicus, if we're not careful, that similarly, our yearning to be part of a group, which is so powerful and leads to other regarding behavior, it, it gives us comfort. But yet, as we've been recognizing you and I, Peter, that that same belonging to a group carries with it dangers of othering other people, of sectarianism, the, the way in which groups, when they close, tend to lean towards polarization and extremism. And then equally, finally, our desire for authority, and we need leadership. It's nonsense to imagine we can have a society without leadership, but that we have to understand that the kind of leaders we want, we have to want leaders not because of what they promise us, but because of what they ask of us. And, you know, so maybe it's far-fetched, but I guess if I accept your principle, which I do, which is we need the foundations for a gator consensus, I wonder whether we can find it in looking in the mirror and seeing what we have in common. Well, that's wonderful. What I would say to you, Matthew, is that's very, very ambitious. And I would say, just to kind of circle back to how I started this conversation or responded to your initial question, that it's far too ambitious for the apparatus of liberal theory or liberal democracy to even begin to address it. And that's why, by the way, liberalism doesn't have a well-defined or authoritative or rigid view that's rooted in social psychology. It is very much rooted in other concepts and core values. You know, you can go back to the golden rule, whether it's, you know, the negative or positive formulation, depending on which testament you happen to read. But, you know, it's very, very much a rules-based, principles-based way of thinking about the world, and it's simply not adequate to the problem or to the challenge that you have set for us, especially in the last question you just, or the last comment you just made. You know, social psychology requires that we delve into a very different aspect of what it is to be human in the world. And of course, it goes to the issue of belonging and community. But you know that when you go there, you begin to flirt with, you know, a lot of beautiful but also very dangerous ideas about the societal arrangements that we enter into. It's what produces fascism. It's what produces cults. It's what produces societies that actually undermine human freedom and that actually deter the process of individual or communal self-actualization. 
I go back to Aristotle when I think about that and the teleological conception of man, the idea that when we come together, we're only most fully actualized when we operate in concert with each other, fulfilling not so much a destiny, but rather our purpose. That goes very much back to his conception of what human nature is. So we come full circle. But I enjoy your challenge to us. I just think we're probably not up to it. I really think that. And I'm not exactly certain how you would move us in that direction well i mean peter this is so frustrating because we we run out of time and it i mean look i'm one sentence in response i'd only say this that the arguments about political theory are basically unchanged in hundreds of years whereas insights into human nature have changed dramatically in recent years as a consequence of anthropology, evolutionary psychology, social psychology, neuroscience. And so there is something new there. And that's why I wonder whether it is in a discussion and an insight into human nature and the way in which it's imprinted on society that we might found the foundations for the consensus that you described. But look, Peter, this has been such a rich conversation. Your book, Constitutional Democracy Under Stress, A Time for Heroic Citizenship, is published by Mosaic Press, and it's got a wonderful introduction by you, but then an amazing set of essays. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I encourage people to get hold of it. Peter, we must continue this conversation again. I will have you on sometime in the future because we've only scraped the surface, but it's It's been an absolute delight to have you join us. Thank you. It's been an honour. Thank you so much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.